Hi, everybody. Thanks for joining us on Logistics Executive TV. Today, I am joined by a legend of the logistics supply chain and transport industry who is uh, is joining us today from UK, uh, Professor John Manners-Bell. John, thanks so much for joining us and welcome. It's great to be here with you, Kim, again after a few years, I believe. It has been. And last time I saw you was in London itself, I think. So uh, at one of your events. But let, let me give a bit of an intro for the folks who are, who are in the, the meeting today, John. So um, really, it's it's been quite a quite a long history for you. Uh, you're a fellow of the you know of the UK Institute of uh, Logistics and Transport. You're the chair and of, of Supply Chain Logistics Global Advisory Council of the World Economic Forum. Where you have been. Um, you've advised the European Commission Directorate General for Energy and Transport. Uh, you've written three books on the industry, as many, many, many thousands of articles. Uh, but global logistics strategies uh, delivering the goods, supply chain risk, understanding emerging threats uh, to global supply chains, and logistics and supply chains in emerging markets, which I've got a copy of just over here. Um, your your book, The Supply Chain Risk, won the uh, mention special at ACA Rule Prize for the Supply Chain Literature uh, Awards in 2014. Uh, you are also, uh, as I've got a lot of knowledge of and dealing with you over the years, the Chief Executive of Transport Intelligence, a global research and uh, industry uh, investigation organisation. Uh, you've uh, honorary visited Professor of London Metropolitan University of Guildhall, Faculty of Business and Law, and you're an advisor, as I said, to the World Economic Forum. So it's uh, you're a busy guy, John. Uh, yeah, that's right. Actually, that uh, that introduction makes me also feel very old. <laughs> still, still keeping the good looks. They're very good. So look, uh, today we're going to talk about your your latest book, The Death of Globalization. Um, and I've yet to read it, but I've been reading some of the reviews, doing some of the homework. But rather than me talk about it, perhaps you can give us a bit of an idea in terms of the premise for this book and we'll lead into a few things I'd love to hear more about the book itself. Yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks, uh, Kim, for the introduction. Look, um, I, I think when we were all, I, I mentioned a bit about uh, age, but I certainly during the uh, 80s and uh, and 90s, as I was sort of uh, growing up and in the logistics industry, uh, you know, we were always taught about the the theoretical uh, the concepts of supply chain management, driving down inventory. You know, they were all commercial based. You know, the everything revolved around logistics theory and uh, just in time and all all the rest of it. Yeah. That's not been the case over the last 10 years. I think since the Great Recession uh, and even a few years before that, we, what we're seeing is that economics as the driving force behind uh, logistics strategy is being replaced by politics and ideology. And really, that is coming to dominate now the, the environment in which we're, we're, we're working. First of all, it, it came about uh, due to well, the offshoring what was happening during the 90s and 2000s was obviously a huge amount of manufacturing that's being offshored from from Europe and the US to to Asia. And really, uh, I think the electorate in the, in Europe and, and US think, well, we were told a bit of a lie because we were told that everything would be great and everyone would be better off. But of course, 
there are large parts of society who were just left behind, you know, the long-term unemployed, the lack of training, the, the poverty, which is, uh, which is now endemic in parts of these uh, parts of the, the Western world. And that's um, led to um, what's been called the democratic deficit. So people no longer trust their, their, their politicians. So on one side of things, we have this sort of domestic policies, which have been driving uh, the, um, the well, election of President Trump, uh, also Brexit. Uh, you, you've, you've seen a, a lot of uh, parties in Europe and on the, on the right wing get, either get into power or take a large amount of the popular vote. Mm-hmm. At the same time as that, on the geopolitical side, we've seen the rise of China. Um, obviously, joined China joined the WTO two thousand and one, and that was the real springboard for its um, for its success. And I think everybody in the West thought, "Well, that's great. You know, we'll have China and countries like it joining the, the sort of Western paradigm, and uh, you know, they'll they'll see they'll get a taste for all these riches, and the next thing they know, they'll be lovely Western democracies just like us." Of course, that was completely naive, okay. and uh, it was never it was never going to happen. Um, but and it's ended up in the disastrous situation where now uh, we have this sort of standoff between the U.S. and and China, and uh, and and countries within China's um, what's called Sinosphere, uh, you know, Belt and Road Initiative countries, you know, one side, and the U.S. trying to uh, align with the sort of Western country uh, with its Western allies on the other, leading to things such as friendshoring and talk about so on and so forth. Yeah. But that, you know we, we, that combined with issues over sustainability, where very few people think that uh, global value chains are, are good for the environment. Uh, ethics, uh, not just in China with the Uyghur community, but if you look at uh, where all the critical raw materials for uh, a large number of uh, electronic um, uh, products are come from, i.e., from Congo or from Africa. You know, there's a there's a lot of big question marks over the conditions in which workers are employed there. You know, so you have a all a concatenation of all these. You have the, the sustainability, you have the ethics, you have the domestic politics, you have geopolitical uh, pressures, and now that is leading to some real big supply chain uh, challenges and changes. Yep. So, so you identify in the book what these key drivers are. Um, talk to us a little bit more how how we really ended up getting into the situation. Then. Well, I think what we've we've, we've seen uh, that from you know, two thousand and one onwards, from when China joined the WTO, what we have we've seen a, a change in the balance of power in the world, and you know that's it's not a bad thing, that's for sure. You know, and uh, yep. it's led to you know uh, uh, millions, if not uh, hundreds of millions, of people in China being lifted out of poverty throughout the whole emerging world as well. You know, it has led to many of the benefits which people were talking about. You know, by the integration of emerging markets with the, the with global systems. You know, fantastic. But at the same time as that. These countries, uh, China specifically, but you can look at, say, Turkey or, or Saudi Arabia, they, yeah. they've all been uh, they've all been following their own domestic uh, political agenda, which hasn't uh, necessarily uh, aligned with the Western <laughs> political agenda. You know, and uh, surprise, but, surprise, uh, surprise, surprise, surprise. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, and this is creating real, real conflict now. I mean, if you look at the uh, high tech sector, 
uh, you'll see that um, the US and its allies are really worried that uh, the Chinese government is building sort of backdoor um, access into electro electronic components for the, the 5G rollout networks in, um, uh, in the West. Uh, at the same time as that, people are worried that uh, Western technologies are sort of bleeding from the commercial world into the into the military in China to uh, to actually provide China with these military capabilities, which will then be used against the West. So that's 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 uh, you know these these borders these these frictions and border controls are being created now to to try and cut off China from from the rest of the world. But of course. It, it's yeah, you know, it's a busted flush. Really. It's, it's it's too late. It's too late for that now. That uh, the cat is out of the bag. Um, there, there's no way that we're going to be able to to control uh, China's growth either economically or militarily. So, um, yeah. uh, and that's why these you know these big frictions, these big geopolitical frictions, are developing. Okay. Yeah. No. Really interesting. And of course, we hear. We hear a lot now and see on all of the uh, uh, all the socials, the business ones in particular, um, a lot on LinkedIn, uh, some on TikTok as well, of course. But we we hear a lot about how the fact that technology in itself is is being weaponized, and you you mentioned the resource issue and you know the scarcity of resources. You see in graphs all the time of where all the resources are, resources are, who's got control of what, and what countries cross borders. Um, you know, is technology now being weaponized in in regards to not only uh, business but uh, but politics as well, geopolitics as well. Yeah, uh, I mean, definitely. I, I think uh, you only have to look at uh, Taiwan. I, I think that's the, the best example. Obviously, I mean, Taiwan, in terms of its advanced semiconductor chip manufacturing industry, leads the world. Uh, and, and but of course, it's you know the uh, China's uh, ambitions to take back Taiwan are going to bring it very much, very quickly into conflict with the US. And we've already seen these uh, these tensions rise and rise over the last uh, last few years. Uh, so, and, and that's led to uh, the US and Europe uh, really start to invest billions in trying to create their own advanced uh, uh, semiconductor manufacturing capabilities. But of course, it will take billions, and that's uh, that ambition is naive as hoping that uh, you know China would have become a nice uh, social democracy, you know, over because uh, the the chip um, supply chain is completely globalized, and it was taken 20, 30 years to build up uh, Taiwan's own capabilities, and to say that uh, Europe's going to do that or US is going to do that in a, in a matter of years is is again you know just not going to happen um yeah it's it's i mean it is it's it's looking at supply chain risk as a whole that that will be i think the the, the overwhelming um characteristic of the development of supply chain over over the next uh, next decade and these risks such as uh, political risk or military risks in, in terms of you know taiwan's well that's going to play a, a hugely important role so so i guess uh this sort of leads into friend sourcing now as well as uh we've had nearshoring and now the buzzword is about friend sourcing i mean is this really catching on um and, and can you explain what friend sourcing is 
Yeah, exactly. It's it's the idea that uh, for not all sectors, but for many sectors which are, are seen as strategic by by Western governments, that they should be encouraging their uh, their companies based in uh, within their their own borders to align uh, with suppliers which are based in uh, those its its neighbouring countries or countries which which share the the same political. Uh, ideals or ideology. So, um, yeah. so we will uh, see the 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 US is uh, obviously reaching out to its European partners, but also to uh, you know Australia, New Zealand, Singapore, uh, to try and build up these networks, these structures in which um, uh, that these there there isn't so much risk in terms of technologies bleeding into uh, adversaries such as. Russia or China, but of course, yeah. the, the difficulty of this is that a lot of countries are uh, non-aligned. So, if you look at India, for example, the I think the Indian um, Prime Minister has been visiting uh, US in the last few days. Also, as they try to to build better links, uh, but India is is very good at playing. A, has had had you know since the nineteen fifties, since independence, it's always played the game of being a non-aligned country. You know, yeah. it's it's not a friend of China, um, but on the other hand, it's not going to uh, align itself with the West, as we've seen after the yeah. uh, invasion of Ukraine by Russia. Uh, sure. India has become one of the biggest uh, uh, consumers of, of Russian oil. So, exactly. uh, so it's got its it's got its own uh, policies which it will which it will pursue. Um, and if you say look at Latin America. Uh, Latin American countries have taken a hell of a lot of money from China, so they're not going to turn around now and say, yeah. "Well, just because the US says oh, we don't want you dealing with with China because there are security <laughs> risks." Exactly. You know, they're, they're, they're all, it's already too late. China has yeah. already invested billions in these in these markets uh, through you know and loaned a lot of these governments large amounts of money. Yeah. They're already integrated now with with China, and so. It's not going to be easy for the US to to turn around and say, "Well, we don't want you to trade with China anymore, please," because we see them as a security risk. Yeah, what's in it for for these for these countries? Um, you, you can see the benefits of them wanting to deal with with China because they get a large check out of it, even though that uh, check will come with strings attached eventually, as they'll see, because the Chinese will want a piece of their government, and uh, you know they're already sort of starting to. Uh, politically leveraged countries, which they've which they've made uh, loans to, yeah. but you know, money money talks. Yeah, I, I guess what I'd be interested to hear from you as a quick response is: is the complex, the apparent complexity uh, of geopolitics these days, and with the effects on supply chains, uh, are things that much more complex these days? Is there that much more dynamism in geopolitics, or are we just hearing about it a lot more and a lot faster because of the the platforms who we got to have immediate uh, information available to us? Yeah, no. Well, I think it's probably a, a, bit, a bit of both, but certainly uh, the world is far more complex and fragmented than it has been for for many many years. I mean, if you look at throughout the sort of nineteen fifties and and sixties. You know, throughout the Cold War, it, things were you know fairly simple. Um, you know, they, on one side you you had the uh, the Soviet Union, um, the Iron yep. Curtain. On on the other, you had NATO and its uh, its allies. And 
that's really characterized uh, politics, but also to a large extent uh, trade uh, as well. But over the over the sixties and seventies, as there was uh, increasingly a liberalisation and uh, an opening up of, of markets, which was largely due to organisations such as the World Trade Organisation, for, for example, um, then we all were looking towards, and there were some uh, sort of, I suppose, epoch uh, characterising books uh, such as the um, uh, the End of History and. Uh, the, you know, the, the the world is flat. So you know, two yep. two great books of their time, so suggesting that, that that this is it. You know, we've we've reached the point where you know after the Berlin Wall wall fell, you know that 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 this was a victory for Western democratic ideals and also free markets. And yep. when China joined the WTO in two thousand and one, that was seen as as vindicating that stance. Everything yeah. that's happened since then has gone counter to, to that, yeah. and um, and so therefore that's why we're we're now see, seeing this huge levels of complexity. You, the U.S. is is no longer the the only superpower in the world, yeah. um, and with with China really become you know likely to, to become the biggest economy at some point mm. in the next uh, ten years. I can't remember when it yeah. is, but uh, yeah. you, you know, it has, yeah. yeah. It has huge political uh, clouts. It has huge economic clouts, and soon, you know, it's building its military clouts as well. So, uh, uh, and so, we're seeing now uh, this sort of rush for for to rebuild these, you know, the friend sourcing or allies shoring or whatever we want to call it, sure. uh, to in, in order to to build com- competing supply chains. Well, I could certainly uh, sit here for hours and listen to your insights and observations, uh, John, but uh, we've got to crack on. And, and, you know, at the end of the day, um, you know, I'd like to talk to you again for the end of the year because things are changing so dramatically. So if you'd be, you'd be up for that, I'd love to do that. But just getting back to the book again before we wrap, um, you, you've you talk about fragmentation and supply chains. What effect is, uh, is sustainability? Where's, where does sustainability play in all of this? Because, you know, through the last few years, the pandemic and what have you, a lot of that sustainability went for a lot of organisations just had to go as, as a secondary issue. What are we seeing now in terms of the impact of sustainability on supply chains? Positive, negative? How are you looking at it? Yeah, well, it, it's multi-layered. It's it's complex as 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 everything is, Kim. Obviously, uh, but in in one level, uh, we're we're seeing uh, the blocks such as the European Union, but uh, be, be followed by by the US. You know, there there's great concerns. We come back to this the point about offshoring and, and outsourcing, because a, a lot of manufacturing and a lot of heavy industry has been uh, offshored from from Europe uh, to emerging markets to China. Uh, and there is great concern that the um, the environmental standards now in those places where the manufacturing has been offshore to are lot are lower than in that they would have been if they're in Europe. So therefore, it is created uh, unfair competition uh, in in a lot of cases when a, a lot of these com- companies are now able to uh, export uh, goods which were uh, produced originally uh, to higher standards. Uh, higher environmental standards in Europe, but now they're being able to be imported, um, exported back into Europe at, at lower costs, 
which is yep. unfair competition for existing manufacturers. So yep. the European Union um, has taken the approach that, well, we're going to be putting up more barriers. Uh, we're going to try and level the playing field by increasing uh, the tariffs or, or placing a levy on, on goods which uh, to stop this uh, carbon leakage, as, it, as it's called. So that's, that's one area where there will be more tariffs um, going up, which, of course, is upsetting people in China. It's upsetting people in the, uh, companies in the US as, as well, because they'll be dragged into it as well. So it's just another uh, example of you can set out with sort of really good intentions, but those intentions result in more protectionism, more barriers, etc. And of course, on top of that, you have uh, from the other end of the spectrum, uh, you have the lobbyists who, who believe the global value chains are bad uh, overall anyway, because they can point to examples where goods are products are processed in one country, moved to another as an intermediate input yep. and more value takes and then they're moved around so they can travel around the world before assembly at, at another location and then being moved halfway around the world uh, back into the, into the West. Uh, and so, yeah. of course, in terms of the um, the carbon emissions, you know, there's a lot of question marks over over, over global value chains, which uh, have, have yet to be answered. Maybe uh, maybe we should be calling that the dark chain. That's a new phrase from today. Yeah. <laughs> because there's so much going on. We've got dark kitchens. Uh, now we need, which they have the same similar, similar effect. Not too sure where you're getting the food from, but it's got the brand on it. Um, yeah. Whereas, you know, dark chains certainly are an element in today's uh, value chain right across the board. John, absolutely uh, enlightening and, and really appreciate uh, you talking to us. Before I let you go, uh, now, We'll talk about the book for a second and where people can get hold of you. Um, just up here, we can see uh, where people can uh, tag you on the book and order the book. Um, they can also get hold of you uh, if you can just tell us what the best places are uh, to get hold of you. I suppose LinkedIn. Yeah, absolutely. Find me on LinkedIn. I've got a fairly unique name, so it's not difficult to, to find me. I'm, I'm on LinkedIn yep. on, on Twitter as well. So we uh, can see the name. Yeah, very good. And uh, also uh, Transport Intelligence, which is uh, you've been going now for well over 20 years since uh, since we right. started uh, interfacing with you on the research that you do all around the world. Um, absolutely. Yeah. Before I let you go, uh, I just want you to give us a very brief uh, heads up on the latest organisation, which I believe you're a founder or a co-founder. Tell us about that because there's some people all around the world that I know that are sitting on the board of that organisation, which looks really interesting. Yeah, the Foundation for Future Supply Chain, it's a not-for-profit organisation, which was uh, set up uh, a couple of years. We've got a strategic advisory board, which is... Uh, advising us on uh, key topics. What we're looking at is sort of the, the uh, I suppose, really high-level uh, issues which are impacting uh, upon the logistics and supply chain industry. So not only uh, risk, we've, we've talked a little bit about uh, sustainability. Obviously, that's, that's a huge impact. Gender diversity, we published a report quite recently on how we can uh, encourage more women uh, into uh, into the industry, particularly in, into uh, into the transport side of, of that sector, uh, and the economic as, as well as the ethical uh, reasons behind that. Uh, so we, we cover many of these sort of really really big issues, which uh, don't seem to get mentioned elsewhere. Uh, but so uh, we, we we're certainly uh, there undertaking research and uh, and publishing reports on, on some of them. 
And some of the people that are on the board of that organisation? Yeah, we, we have Mark Miller, who, who I, you, I guess you'll know, and uh, Alan oh, well. McKinnon, uh, Alan yeah. Braithwaite uh, as, as well. So we have uh, a mix of uh, leading academics, but also a, a lot of practitioners as, as well. So we get this sort of a, a real mix of, of people, you know, people from the de- technologies sector. Ken Lyon, uh, for example, he uh, advises us on uh, digitalization of markets and uh, uh, artificial intelligence, which is an enormous subject in his own right at the, at the moment. Fantastic. So, John, thanks so much again for joining us. John Manisbell, author, uh, leader, teacher, sort of thought leader around the world over the last 20, 30, 40 years, I guess. Uh, an absolute legend in the industry and always a pleasure to talk to you, John. Thanks so much. And uh, we look forward to talking to you again. Really enjoyed it, Kim. I look forward to coming back. Thanks, uh, thanks, John. And thanks, everybody, for joining us on Logistics Executive TV.